Thanks, Mel. Good to be with you. My name's Andrew. Let's pray and keep Colossians chapter 1 open. Someone just gave me a weird look. Yes, my name's Andrew. (laughs) People call me hazy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you might open our minds to understand it um, and to uh, receive from it hope and clarity. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to the second half of our series we started last week, Is There Any Hope for the Planet? And you do need to hear both halves, so you can find last week's on the church website, there's a little public service announcement. But with all the news that's out there about the planet, the environment, is there any hope? The Bible says there is. And tonight we're going to see what God has done and what he will do to fix his creation And we'll think about how that should then factor into our decision making. And it is an incredible message of hope. Look in Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 that Mel just read for us. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is the hope. Do you see there? Not just for people, but for all things, the universe. We love as as a church to talk about how the cross saves us personally. And Paul does say that as well. Verse 22, he says, if you trust in Jesus, he has reconciled you to God. He's put you back into right relationship with God. You're now holy in his sight without blemish. Isn't that good news? Your sin washed away. If you trust in Jesus, he's taken your punishment. You don't have to hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so as a church, we love this truth. We rejoice in it. We live to proclaim it. You can be saved. Amen? Amen. But in verse 20, Paul's not talking about the personal effects of the cross, he's talking about the cosmic effects of the cross. If it was about people, it would be teaching something called universalism, the idea that everyone goes to heaven. But that's not what Paul teaches. In fact, he says the opposite. Verse 22, the verse we just looked at, he's reconciled you if, verse 23, you continue in your faith. You are saved if you have faith in Jesus and only if you keep trusting in him, otherwise you won't be saved. Not everyone will be in heaven in the new creation. And that's why in chapter 4, Paul asks them to pray for him, verse 3, pray for us so that we'll proclaim the message that saves. That's why Paul lived the way that he lived. There were things that he chose not to do because he knew it mattered more that people hear this message. The only message that saves because it's the only message that leads people to Jesus who saves, to trust in him. And he says you should do that too. Chapter 4 verse 5, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. And so, universalism is wrong. It's wrong to think that all people are saved. It doesn't fit with Paul's words and it doesn't fit with his life. Which, just to apply that to us, means it matters what we do with God's word tonight. Make sure that you're right with him. You can get right with him even tonight. But chapter 1, verse 20, isn't talking about people anyway. Have a look. It says, Jesus' death will reconcile all things. Now, do you know how French has masculine words like le croissant and feminine words like la baguette? 
don't know why I beget is feminine, but there you go. Greek, the language that Paul wrote in, has masculine, feminine, and neuter. When it's about people, it uses masculine or feminine. But the word here is, you guessed it, neuter. All things. This is talking about the rest of creation. And so, through Jesus, verse 20 says, God is reconciling all things. To reconcile means to make it right with God. Or to make it right. And so Jesus died to make all of creation right with God. Now, how does that work? Did he die for chickens? Die for the sins that chickens committed? No. Chickens don't sin. It means he died to put all of creation back the way God intended it to be, back in order. I'll say it again. Verse 20 means Jesus died to restore all of creation to the order God intended. And so verse 20 calls that peace. There is the hope for our planet. Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Last week we saw some different purposes that God has for trees. Here's another one. For the Son of God to be able to hang on its wood and so fix the world. Tonight we're going to see how that works. How does the cross put all of creation back in order? But before we get there, I want to compare it to some other approaches to finding hope for the planet. Now some people think there's no hope. Uh, So one in three Americans think it's at least quite likely that climate change will cause the planet to become uninhabitable for all life. Maybe there's no hope, but people actually need hope. And so some people think, well, actually, the planet can be saved, but not people, because we're the problem. And so to save the planet, we've got to reduce the number of people. We've got to get rid of the humans. In fact, today, even today, there's a group called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. But this idea took off in the 60s. In fact, watch this. We'll get the sound if that's okay. Views on how to bring the 
What was that all about? That's wild, isn't it? Does anyone remember that? I'll see you at the back. There you go. Some people down the front here. Uh, did you catch what the hope for the planet was? There's hope for the planet only if humans get out of the way. Just as an aside, if two is the number of children you think you want, I wonder where that came from. Maybe, no, it's possible, you know, culture changes through things like this. Now, others find hope in in a different way, so there's one approach. Another approach to hope is, well, people say, oh, it's probably not as bad as they say. And can you start to see why some people might think that? What would you be like if you grew up hearing about the population bomb? The President of the United States said in the year 2000, cities would be unlivable, only to find out... They were wrong. In fact, less people die from famine now than ever before, even though world population has doubled. Not only that, they've been wrong other times. They said we'd run out of oil. Actually, they said it lots of times, and so far that's been wrong. And they thought that the world could end from nuclear holocaust in the Cold War. Now, does anyone remember or know what Y2K was? They said that As the clocks ticked over to the year 2000, computers would go berserk because the date would go from 99 to 00, back 100 years, and so planes would drop out of the sky and nuclear reactors would go boom. Now, my point is not that these weren't real threats. In fact, some of them are still real threats today. My goal is actually empathy. Can you see why some might be sceptical of claims that the world is ending again? They hear you say, or they hear people say, there's 10 years left to save the climate. And they think, well, that's what they said 30 years ago. Now, that article could actually be right, because it didn't say when the effects would actually happen. And it probably is true that what happened in that decade has had effects that maybe we won't be able to solve. But it does seem like that article was a bit exaggerated, which is the problem with journalism or the danger. The worse the news is the more you'll buy it. And so some might think that there's a motive to exaggerate. Now, I'm not saying the problems aren't big. The scientific community says there are big problems. Not the extinction of all life, by the way. Not, no scientist is saying that all of humanity will be extinct. But very serious problems that we're not tackling fast enough. And yet you can see why some people might say, ah, it's probably not that bad. Third approach, some people find hope in us. We'll fix it. Humans are the hope of the planet. And they'll say things like, well, that's why the population bomb didn't go off. We got better at farming. We learned how to produce more food using less land. And so now the total amount of land being used for farming around the world is falling. Life is, in fact, better for almost everyone in almost every way. We live longer, less disease, more safety, more money, more comfort. 
In fact, it even means that less people are dying from natural disasters than ever before. It's dropped every decade for about 100 years. But that's just people. What about the planet? Well, turns out the ozone layer is recovering and so is the Great Barrier Reef. More land is set aside as national parks. There are fewer oil spills. Turns out the, the numbers of tigers in the wild are increasing. So are pandas and rhinos and, in fact, half of world's animals, which makes you wonder about the other half, but don't think about that. NASA says the Earth's green leaf area has increased by 5%. That's the size of the Amazon in this picture. More green is blue and less... So more green vegetation is blue and less is yellow. Because it turns out that carbon dioxide in the air helps plants grow. It helps photosynthesis. They lose less water. Now, you've got to be careful with some of these things because more trees in one spot doesn't necessarily compensate for losing old forests over here. But, you know, Australia's carbon emissions are lower now than they were 25 years ago. Same with America. Maybe we're doing it. Maybe we are the hope of the planet after all. The problem is what we saw last week, greed. We saw what the Bible has to say about, well, some of what the Bible has to say about the natural world, creation, and it turns out there's a lot. It's all through the gospel. In two ways to live, it's the blue circle. That's the creation, because the Bible has a lot to say about it because God made it and he loves it, and that's why nature is valuable and worth caring about. And we saw that God made humans for a special role in his creation, where the most special part, made in his image, which doesn't mean we can abuse it because he made us to represent him by loving and ruling and caring for it. And so that means two things. Number one, it's wrong to save the planet by getting rid of humans. We're the most valuable part of creation. But secondly, we, humans, Christians, should care for the planet. That's our role. Now, that doesn't mean don't touch it. It means using it appropriately for the things that God designed it to be used for. That's, in fact, why we're actually capable of doing all those things that have improved so many lives. But we finished last week by seeing the problem. Humans have rebelled against God. We've chosen to use creation for our greedy purposes instead of God's good purposes. That happened in the fall, and as a result of the fall, we are now, all humans, have sinful natures. We're selfish, we're greedy, and our greed has ruined our relationship with the planet, hasn't it? So how can we think that humans will save the planet? We're the problem. As soon as we fix a mess over here, we create another mess over here. Electric cars, they cut emissions. But the batteries are made from cobalt, almost all of which comes from Congo, where many of the mines are unsafe and worked by small children. Now Tesla says that it doesn't tolerate child labour. Last year, they had a shareholder meeting and there was a proposal at the shareholder meeting to get Tesla to report on how it's going at that. And Elon Musk recommended that everyone should vote against that proposal. And so, all the shareholders voted against the proposal. They didn't want to report on how they're going against child labour. They don't want to know. But do you want to know where everything that you buy comes from? Do I? Listen to what um, Gus Spieth said after a lifetime of environmental activism. I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science we could address those problems. 
but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed and apathy and to deal with those we need a spiritual and cultural transformation and we, lawyers and scientists, don't know how to do that. So the latest reports are that the world is not doing enough to cut carbon emissions. If it's up to humans to save the planet, basically you have to put your trust in big companies like Tesla and the Chinese government because our whole country's emissions are a tiny fraction of China. If you think humanity will save the planet, I don't know that we've really seen the size of the problem. The size of the problem is greed, and we don't know how to fix that. But the Bible actually says there is hope, a far better hope than all of those options, for, the, for humans and for the planet. We won't have to choose, they'll be both together. In fact, it even says... A human will save the planet. It just won't be me or you. And so there's the first point tonight in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus the Creator entered creation as a human to fix it. Look at Colossians chapter 1 again, verse 15. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It doesn't mean he was the first thing created. It's saying he's got the rights of a firstborn to inherit and rule creation. Why? Because verse 16, in him all things were created. says it again at the end of the verse, all things have been created through him and for him. Just think about that for a second. Everything that exists was made by Jesus and for Jesus. My cat, your car, you... To care for creation properly, that is to help it achieve the purposes that God gave it. Well, we won't be able to do that until we work out how to use it for Jesus. Now, Jesus, the creator that we just talked about there, became human. Chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The infinite maker made a finite body for himself so that he could walk around in the world he made. Why? And why a human and not something more majestic like a blue whale? Well, we saw one reason a couple of weeks back in John 14. It was because humans sinned and so it had to be a human to pay the price. And no mere human can pay for the sins of billions so it had to be God become a human. That's why there's no other way we can be saved. But there's another reason that he had to be human to fix the world. I wonder if you can work out what it is. It's because that is the job that God gave to humans. We saw this last week in Genesis chapter 1. It was to humans that God gave the job of ruling the world and subduing it. And therefore, when God fixes the world, when he subdues the chaos of evil, he does it. Through a human. So that even that part of the creation order is fixed as well. Remember we saw last week, or if you caught the podcast, and if you didn't, I'll tell you, we saw last week, there's an order to creation. There are things that are made for purposes. Humans have failed at the purposes, that, at the role that we were given in the creation order. But God is not just going to throw that role away. When he fixes the world, he's going to pick up that role 
and make it right too. A human fixes the world, Jesus. And that's what Hebrews chapter 2 is about. You can turn there if you like, but you don't have to, I'll tell you. Hebrews chapter 2 quotes Psalm 8, which is a psalm about the role that God has given to us humans. And Hebrews 2 says that that psalm, that role, is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus in his death. Do you see, Jesus' death is what subdues the chaos of the evil of the world, which is what we were meant to do. And so for eternity, the new creation will be ruled by a human, by Jesus. He's still fully God, but now he's got a human nature as well. And so there's the first piece of, of God reconciling all things to himself, and I think that's the hardest piece. The first part of how Jesus restores creation order to the way God intended it to be. Do you see God's commitment to the created order that he made? Even when God fixes the order, he doesn't bypass the order, he goes through it, he follows it. For God to fix creation without fixing us would be like having a wedding without a bride. I was trying to imagine this, it's not a nice thought. Imagine turning, I hope this hasn't happened to you. Imagine turning up on your, your wedding day and, and it's perfect, you know, it's just crying out to be turned into an Instagram story. Except for one thing. Your bride hasn't turned up. No, you still have a good day. No. No matter how pretty it is, it's fundamentally broken. And that's the case with the world and us. Because of the way God made the world, it's not possible for God to fix the world without humans in it. No matter how pretty he made it, it would still be broken. And that's why the cross is so important. Because it's at the cross that God makes it possible for us humans to be there. And that's the second piece we're going to see. Jesus' death makes right us and our relationship with God and each other in creation. How can broken humans be let in to God's perfectly fixed, restored world? We don't deserve it and we'll just ruin it when we get there. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection solves both of those things. Number one, we don't deserve it. Well, we saw in Colossians chapter 1, 22, he takes away our sin. All your sins. Yes, even that one. And that means your relationship with God is made right. He doesn't see a sinner. He sees his perfect child. When you're raised from the dead, why wouldn't you be allowed in? You're clean. His death on the cross has made you clean. And, secondly, we won't ruin it, because when he raises you from the dead, he will raise you fixed. 1 Corinthians 15.42 So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. Notice it doesn't say, you've got a body now, but you'll be a spirit floating around in heaven. No, it says, your body will be raised. The body that is sown, it is raised imperishable. It doesn't say at the end that you'll be raised a spirit. Common misreading. It says you'll be raised a spiritual body. When you're raised from the dead, you'll have a body, your body, but it'll be far better, a spiritual body, whatever that means. Well, we know a little bit what it means. It means it won't be dishonourable and weak anymore. It'll be 
powerful and glorious enough to never sin. The Greek word there, translated imperishable, means more than just unbreakable. We have an unbreakable kid's toy, but it broke the first day. (laughs) It means incorruptible, impossible to corrupt in any way, even sin. God will completely undo the effects of the fall that gave us a sinful nature so that in heaven we will never sin again. Imagine that. Never to hurt someone you love again. Isn't that exciting? Your battle against sin will be won forever. Lawyers and scientists can't fix greed, but Jesus and his death and resurrection can. And so our relationships with each other and with creation will also be perfect. Can you imagine it? A world of only love. Nothing unlovable. Nothing sinful. Reunited with all of God's people, the heroes of the faith and the ones that we loved here imperfectly until, until death interrupted that. But there we'll be again and we'll love them even more and we'll enjoy one another with a love that's never again interrupted by death and which grows stronger and deeper each passing year for eternity. And together, we will lovingly rule God's creation alongside Jesus, its creator, the way we were meant to. There's the second piece of the world put back in order through the cross, humanity. We won't be missing from the new creation. We'll be, the new creation will be filled with God's people and it'll be fixed. Now, For the sake of time, we won't spend long on the third piece. I'll just give it to you briefly. Number three, Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, says that through the cross, Jesus defeated the evil demonic powers because he's taken away our sin. Verse 14, evil powers, chapter 2, verse 14, evil powers have lost any right to accuse us. When judgment day comes, they'll be banished from the world and they won't even be able to say, you should come too. And so there's the third piece, the third way that Jesus' death on the cross puts the world right. And it's a different kind of putting things right, isn't it? It's the kind of right that happens when the war stops, when the war criminals are put where they belong. And so now the way is open. Now we wait for Jesus to return. And when he comes, he'll do two things. Number one, he'll judge the world. And number two, he'll renew creation better than ever. Have a look in your Bibles at 2 Peter chapter 3. Just as there are people who are sceptics about the climate today, Peter says there'll be people who are sceptics about God's judgment. So 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 4, he says, Scoffers will come. And they'll say verse... Oh, sorry, verse 3, scoffers will come. They'll say verse 4, Where is this coming, he promised. But because God loves the world... He will come in judgment. He won't let our greed destroy his creation forever. And so verse 7, there is a day of judgment coming. Verse 10 calls it the day of the Lord. And have a look at verse 10. Suddenly, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. You see the image there? It's like a purifying fire that lays bare the whole creation. Because the effects of sin in our world are so deep that the only way to fix it is effectively to end the world as we know it. 
I was thinking about maybe uh, um, bringing up a crushed drink can. But I didn't. But I wonder if that's a, a good illustration. It's not going to be enough just to stretch it and iron it, is it? It's going to need some more recycling than that. Or maybe you think of a house that's so full of mould and termites that to save it, every wall will need to be stripped bare back to the frame. On that day, you, I, everyone, will have to face God, either as someone whose sin has been taken away by Jesus or your own punishment as a rebel. And and it'll be infinitely worse than even the most extreme climate change or environmental apocalyptic scenario. And so I beg you, I beg you, make Jesus your saviour. Make sure he's your saviour. God wants you to do it because he wants you to be there when he renews his creation. And that's the other thing Jesus will do when he comes. He will renew creation better than ever. Come to Romans chapter 8. Doing a bit of flicking tonight, but you can do it. Because Romans chapter 8 helps us see that it will be this creation that he fixes. He's not going to chuck this creation in the red bin and order another one online. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 20. It says, The creation was subjected to frustration. That's what we saw last week. The ground is now cursed, broken, frustrated because of our sin. But here's the key bit, verse 21 was subjected in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of the, and glory of the children of God. Creation itself will be liberated, not thrown away, set free. God is going to fix this creation because he made it and he loves it, like we saw last week. And so verse 19 says creation is waiting For that to happen. What's it waiting for? Verse 19. For us. Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You see what we saw earlier. God will not fix the world without us. It would be missing. It wouldn't be fixed. It would be missing its most special part. That's why the cross is the key to reconciling all things. Without the cross, creation cannot be fixed. Parts of it can. You know, he could stop whatever environmental disaster like that. But it wouldn't be restored, not without humanity. And so creation will not be put right until Jesus comes back and raises us from the dead. And so until then, verse 22, creation groans. And we groan, verse 23, as well. While we wait for the day that our bodies are redeemed. Notice there again, redeemed, not replaced. Our bodies, our own bodies will be fixed. What about the pictures of fire that we saw in 2 Peter 3? Well, it seems that the the renovation to get rid of the mould in this house is going to have to be very deep. Every wall stripped back to the frame, maybe even the frame itself. But when it's all done, it will still be the same house. It might be better. It will be better. It might be even unrecognisably better in some ways. It'll have the same foundation, the same frame, if you like. Metaphors always have limitations. 1 Corinthians gives us another metaphor. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about a seed as a metaphor for our bodies. 
when you, you die, you plant the seed, but the seed radically changes. You say, where did the seed go? What's the plant? The plant is the seed, but it's been dramatically transformed. Recycling might be another illustration. Anyway, the point is this. It'll be this creation, which means it'll be physical, because this creation is physical. It won't be less real, like some fluffy world of clouds. So come to the end of the Bible. This one's easy to find, Revelation 21. Just go to the end and turn back, unless you've got a long concordance. Revelation 21 deliberately uses words that sound like the start of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's doing it again. And so this creation is meant to be a clue, a bit of a tasting plate of what the next one might be like. And so this world is physical. You can run, climb, swim. The new creation will be at least as physical which is good because we'll have physical bodies. That's why I really like these lines that we sing, how I long to breathe the air of heaven, walk with God in the streets. I'm sorry to say that Amazing Grace gets this wrong, at least Chris Tomlin's version. Um, This verse was in the original poem that Newton wrote, but it didn't make it into the traditional hymn, and maybe this is why, because what do you think of this? The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun stop shining. The last bit's really good. God who called me here below will be forever mine. Amen. But will the earth dissolve? Will the sun really stop shining? Only for a moment, temporarily in judgment. And so maybe we should rewrite it. Um, The earth shall soon be new like snow. The sun will clearly shine. I'm not going to change a hymn. Who am I kidding? (laughs) But it will be restored. It'll be better than ever. And so I've called it Restored Plus Plus. Look at Revelation 21, the surfer's favourite Bible verse. There was no longer any sea. That's a bit worrying. We'll skip over that one. No, Revelation uses picture language, right? And so, because it's trying to describe a reality that's uh, far beyond anything you've experienced. And so, verse 2, for example, has a city dressed up like a bride. You try and think about that. And then you find out it's a picture of God's people. It's all very confusing. It's picture language. So, the sea in the ancient world represented danger. The sea, the danger, will be no more. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, God is making everything new. All the effects of the the fall and and sin will be gone. Chapter 22 verse 3 even says the curse will be gone. What a hope we have for the planet. Every last scar left by humans will be completely healed. And then you get all these weird pictures to say, yeah, but it won't just be what it was, it'll be better. Better than you can even imagine. So chapter 21, verse 16, you get a city shaped like a cube. I don't know how that works. And the streets are made of gold, verse 21. Verse 23, God's glory will replace the sun. And verse 20, uh, chapter 22, you get a river, the river of the water of life, and somehow you have a tree on both sides of the river, and its leaves heal the nations. So, but all of that's trying to send the message, it's going to be much, much better. Will there be animals? Isaiah 65 ends with a picture of a wolf and a lamb feeding peacefully together. So maybe... Or maybe it's just a picture of peace. I know my cat won't be there. Not because it's, he's a sinner, although he is a pest. 
but because it doesn't seem that animals have souls in the way that humans do. But I do think, and we're speculating a bit here, let me... I do think the language of creation, this creation liberated, suggests there probably will be animals there. And who knows, maybe even all the animals that have gone extinct. Or maybe new ones as well. I don't know, why not? It'll be this creation, renewed, but better. I'm spending a bit of time on this because I think sometimes we worry that the new creation might not be quite as good as this one. At least I think that lies behind some of our decisions, the way we often live. We, we can live like, ah, oh, I don't want to miss out on anything. But do you see why that's silly? Do you really think God won't do as good of a job with his eternal, perfect new creation that's restored as this fallen temporary one? There's nothing that you can miss out on in life that won't be better in the new creation anyway. In the last, let me study it. In the last Narnia book, Aslan leads them into the new eternal Narnia. Listen to this. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. The new one was a far deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. That's just such a strange line. (laughs) With a straight face. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his hoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Come on up. Come further in. What a hope we've got for us and the planet. All of creation restored to the order God intended forever because of the cross. And so, what should we do now? How does this help us make decisions? Let me, let me show you. It means, first of all, that we live as new creation people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that if you're a Christian, the new creation has already started. It started in you. By His Spirit, God is already beginning His work of transforming you. Now, until the resurrection, you'll still have that sinful nature, but now you've got a new power by the Spirit, and so start to live as people of the new creation. What does that mean? Well, number one, look forward to it. Come back to Colossians chapter 3. Back to Colossians, this time chapter 3. Since then, you've been raised with Christ... Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As your heart breaks to see the problems in our world, the the environment, for example, The first thing to do, not the only thing, but the first thing 
is let it fuel your longing for the day when Jesus will fix it completely. It's right and appropriate to lament the evil in our world. Weep with those who weep. But don't let it drag your focus away from the new creation. Instead, let it push your heart forward in longing. Endure the suffering by trusting in Him. He will save the world even if we don't. But does that mean it doesn't matter what we do? You know, if the house is going to be rebuilt anyway, why not just throw a wild party and trash the place? Some people think like that, but it's not the way the Bible talks. In fact, Jesus coming back means it matters more what you do, not less. So again, Colossians chapter 3, look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. If we are new creation people, we should start to live like it. And greed is the exact opposite of that. Greed is living the way everybody else lives in this world. It's loving the things of this world more than God, which is why he says it's idolatry. It's worshipping creation instead of creator. And do you see how fighting greed in your life would help the environment? Greed is what makes us consume more than we have to. Greed is what makes people too busy to care. They're so busy working the hours to keep the lifestyle. Brothers and sisters, you probably can't control what China does. Good luck to you if, you if you can, good. But you can fight greed in your own life and that will make a difference. Small, dif- small changes do add up. But even if it makes no difference at all, it's good, it's loving and it pleases God. That should be enough of a reason. And so we can ask questions like, should I, do I really need to upgrade that? Can I get it secondhand? Can I repair it? Live as new creation people and fight sin, especially greed. I had some thoughts on gambling, which is greed. We'll have to talk about that another time. But instead of greed, verse 14 says, put on love. Because the new creation is a world of love. And so instead of thinking about what you can get out of the world, start to think about what your actions are putting into the world, good or bad. And so what's a loving response to, for example, climate change? Well, verse 12, first of all, be kind, humble, gentle towards everybody, including especially those who disagree with you. There's one. But secondly, it's loving to consider how your actions are affecting the planet and others who also live on it. And so we should listen to what the scientific community says, the biologists and ecologists and economists and maybe even the politicians. Now... Because they're humans, we know that they're weak, they're sinful, just like us, and so they'll get things wrong, just like us. But because they're made in the image of God, they'll also get lots of things right. And so it's wise and loving to consider what solutions and what problems they point out and solutions they suggest, and then perhaps try to do those things. And so last week I said that almost all solar panels are made using slave labour in China, but it's not all of them. And so... Do the research, find the one that doesn't, and if it ha- you have to spend a bit more to get it, isn't that worth it? Another thing to do is to think as a Christian about the things that you hear. Will climate change lead to the end of humanity? I'm not making a scientific comment here, I'm just, what does the Bible say? Well, it actually doesn't say anything about climate change, but it says a lot about humanity. 
there won't be an end to humanity. That is not God's plan. But yes, the scientific community is telling us that there are serious problems and we should use the wisdom that he's given us together to do what we can about them. You've heard me say that, yeah? I've said that two weeks in a row. And I want you to know that I've said that because now I'm going to tell you there's something even more important to do. What is the most loving thing you could do? The most loving. What's the best way to care for creation? It's to bring people to Jesus the saviour and ruler. Last week we saw that caring for creation means helping it to the purposes God made it for. Well, all of creation is for Jesus, including the most special part of creation, humans. And so the best thing that you can do to care for creation is introduce it, bring them back to the, the one that they were created for. I'm not saying it's the only thing to do, but it is the best thing we can do because if we bring someone to Jesus, we don't just help them out of poverty in this life or we help them out of all suffering for eternity. And only Christians can do that. You see, this matters because we've got to make decisions in life. You can't have everything you want in life. We've only got so much time, so much energy, so much money. You can have as many enemies as you like. Let me give you two examples. You're planning a wedding. That seems to be a thing that people do around here. And, you know, you'll have to decide what to spend. What sort of wedding will we have? And social media has done what you don't need me to tell you. Social media has done exactly what you think it would have done. Weddings have gotten nicer and nicer and therefore more and more expensive. Now, you heard me say last week that it's good to enjoy good things. Give thanks to God. There's no law in the Bible about what you should spend on a wedding. You've got freedom. Enjoy. Just know that your decisions have effects. If you look at the average Australian wedding budget and you shaved off 20%, so you leave still 80%, that would be enough to sponsor a child in poverty from the age of 3 to 18. A whole child's life changed and if it's through a christian organization like compassion and they hear about jesus an eternity could be changed or you could spend that on one day now i'm not advocating joyless christianity celebrate in fact i actually think there's more joy in giving than receiving well that's not my idea jesus said it psychologists worked out he was right so find more joy that's what love is giving up good that you could have for another and if you really love You enjoy it. So, as you plan your wedding, what else could this money go to? And and is that the best use? You've got freedom. It's good to enjoy good things. Think lovingly. What about your spare time? Let's just imagine, boil it all down, you've got a choice. You've got just this amount of spare time and you can either go to a campaign, a rally for the environment... Or you can do a gospel ministry. You can serve on a crusader camp or do EV kids or whatever. Now, is one good, one bad? No, they're both good things. But if you can only do one, which will make the bigger difference? In light of the new creation, the gospel. There are lots of people who don't know that Jesus' death is the only hope for the planet and for its people. And they think this world is all that we've got. And so they are spending bucket loads of money and time trying to fix climate, whatever problem. And so almost every government, 
The United Nations, countless organisations, companies, billionaires are all working on that problem. But who is working on the even bigger problem facing humanity, Judgment Day? There's no group on the planet who is giving time and money to telling people about Jesus except Christians. There's a uniquely Christian contribution that we can make and only we can make. Sometimes Christians say things like, yeah, but if you care for creation, you're working with God to build the new, king, the new creation. You know, you're building the kingdom. I'm sorry, it's a nice idea, but it's not what the Bible says. If you look up every time the Bible talks about the kingdom, you'll see a pattern between how God is speaking about and how we're speaking about. We receive the kingdom, enter the kingdom, and tell people about the kingdom. But when it comes to language about building the kingdom, it's always God. God is the one who builds the kingdom. And so caring for creation is a good thing to do, but it's not building the kingdom. If you pick up rubbish, it won't make the new creation cleaner. But if you tell people about Jesus and they come to believe in him, it will mean they get to be there. And that's why if you look at the commands in the New Testament, there's not one single command to make art, even though art is very beautiful and good to do. And there's not a single command to care for the environment. The Old Testament gives you that. We should do it. But the New Testament is crystal clear on what matters most. Matthew 28. One last passage. Jesus gives his church a mission. He says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, love creation by telling it about its saviour. Fill the earth with that message. Subdue it by teaching people to obey Jesus. There is a tragedy happening that so many people are working so hard to fix a planet, they won't even get to be there when it is fixed. And when you're surrounded by people who can only see the near future, the next 50 years, it becomes easy to focus on that as well. Brothers and sisters, live as new creation people. Have the big perspective. Live lives of love, not greed. Look forward. And especially do what is most loving. And let me just encourage you. I know lots of you guys are doing that. It is loving. You are caring for creation. Keep going. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus as a human to fix the world. And you've invited us to be part of that as well as your messengers. Please help us to do that. Help us to be loving and not greedy in the way that we live in this planet, that we might please you. But we pray, Lord, that many around the world and in our country and on the coast will come to find the saviour they need. We pray that even tonight that might happen. In Jesus' name, amen.